Good morning. Happy New Year to you all. How many of you made it to 12 o'clock last night? A couple of you. So you'll need everybody around you to kind of nudge you to stay awake during the sermon. Well, we're glad you're here. We're back in Ephesians, our last week in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, this morning, verses 5 through 9. This is our last passage, and then we're moving on to 1 Peter next week. So 1 Peter will be our next series, uh, but this morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Hear God's word, Paul writes this, Ephesians 6, verse 5 through 9. The bondservants, he says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere hearts as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering the service with a good will as to the Lord and not man, knowing that whatever God... Uh, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Well, Joe was a working man. He was tall and lean. His face was rough and tan from all the days that he was forced to work outside. His hands were tough. Hands you get by working hard. And as he walked into his door, his wife leaned in and gave him a kiss. You could tell by her smile that she was so very proud of not only Joe, but his work. Not so much for Joe. When the interviewer asked him what he did, he immediately became embarrassed. His wife wasn't embarrassed. She said he works for the borough, picks up trash for a living. I'm so very proud of him. He, he is able to throw so much trash on the truck that he does so more than anybody else and therefore he saves the borough money over time. She began to beam about his work ethic. You could tell the embarrassment began to kind of disappear. At this point, Joe interjected. He said, yes, I saved the borough money over time. The man hours are done. The cost per truck is lowered. As you hear these two talk about their job, you wonder, how could they have so much pride? How could they find so much joy in picking up trash for a living? Many of us struggle to find enjoyment in our own jobs, but yet here Joe is and his wife so very proud of his vocation. Yes, how the question, how can this be? But you must understand this wasn't always the case. Joe lost his job a couple years back and it forced him to be on welfare. Having three kids in the home, he was desperate for a job, and he found one at the borough, but his paycheck at first was actually lower than his welfare check. Incredibly embarrassed about his work, incredibly depressed that he wasn't making enough to be able to support his family, but yet this job at the borough forced his family to move into a different house. When they walked into this smaller house, there was this This frame upon the wall, and inside it was this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. Quote said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep the streets, even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He, He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well unto the Lord. 
quote, did nothing to change his job, but it did everything to change his enjoyment in his position. This quote reminded him he didn't need a different vocation to find his joy, but yet what he needed to simply do was shift his eyes to see who he was actually working for. He wasn't throwing trash for the city so much as he was throwing trash for the king of kings. And as he realized that what he was doing for the king of kings, he realized that that now his vocation, his job, every morning was an opportunity to worship his king. I wonder how many of us wake up tomorrow morning and go into our vocations with that attitude. How many of us see our work, our vocation as a worship opportunity? Whether we're we're raising the kids at home, whether we're going on base or we make our way to, to the marketplace. Is that our hearts? Do, do we see our vocations as a worship opportunity? Well, one Gallup poll suggests we don't. One Gallup poll suggests that 87% of Americans are dissatisfied with their job. Which is pretty crazy because we'll spend 80,000 of our lives in the workplace. And yet, here we are, not finding satisfaction in our vocation or our calling. Is any wonder that another Gallup poll suggests that what we want more than food and what we want more than shelter is a good job? And, and maybe our problem is the way we look at our vocation is that a satisfying vocation is one who brings in a lot of money, but maybe that's our problem. Because as Pastor Brian Loritz says so clearly, is the one who's building the sky, kind of the, the, the towers out in the cities are just as dissatisfied with their work as the ones sitting in the towers. See, job dissatisfaction is a universal trait. But we ask the question, how do we get there? Because as you and I open up the scriptures, what we see in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, is we see our God is a God who works. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created, he worked. He, he created the, the, the birds in the sky and the animals on the ground. He's created, created the, the heavens. He created the earth. He's a God who, who works. And if we were made in his image, if we have his design DNA imprint upon our souls, then you and I were made for work as well. That's exactly what we see. That God created work to be a blessing to us. He created work for us to find enjoyment in it, for us to bless other people and glorify Him. He created work to be a worship opportunity. But we often don't see our work that way, do we? So many days we come home from the work and we wonder did we ever make a difference? So many times we find ourselves changing another diaper and we wonder there's got to be more to life than this. So many days we, we go to work and we drive back home from work and the routine of it all is exhausting. But this is not how God created work to be. In fact, what we notice is that, that not only is our God one who works, but he made his people to find enjoyment in their jobs. In fact, the first very thing we see as we, God, he, he places Adam in the garden, and what do we see him do? He gives him a work to do. He says, work it and keep it. 
He's saying in so many words, this, this is what will, will bring you your greatest satisfaction. This will, will bring you blessing. This is an opportunity that you go and, and every time you have sweat upon your brow, it's an opportunity for worship, to glorify your God in heaven. But again, we ask the question, what went so wrong? Well, the fall went wrong. Since Adam and Eve sinned, everything was tainted, our character was tainted, our relationships were tainted, and our work was tainted. And it no longer feels this joy as we go into the workplace, but rather it feels like this great curse and this burden. And the question we ask this morning is, how do we get back? How do we get back to finding satisfaction in our work? How do, how do we get back to seeing it as a worship opportunity? How do we get back to using our vocations as a way to bless other people and glorify God. Well, thankfully, Paul is going to, to address that this morning, but one of the things we see at the beginning is we, before we see his answer, we have to deal with this issue of slavery in our passage. Notice in verses 5 through 8, Paul addresses the slave, and then in verse 9, he addresses the slaveholder. And what we have to understand is that Rome at the time, there are 60 million different slaves. One-third of the population in Ephesus was slaves. And many people look at this passage like this and saying, does the Bible support slavery? Over the years, sadly, many people have suggested this is what the Bible, this passage actually suggests. But, but that is not the case at all. In fact, what we see is Paul dismantling this issue of slavery even in his words. But, but before we even get there, we need to know five principles about slavery, about how it worked in the first century world. First thing you have to understand is that it was completely different than slavery in America. Slavery in America was based off a race, not so in Rome. Many occasions, what, what would the slaves would be is they would be kind of those who were conquered in war. It would be those who, who had a debt to society and they were repaying it. It was those who, who may be abandoned by their family. Like many slaves in the Roman world, they would be picked up or adopted and they would give their families or the, the family would support them for the first 15 years of their life. And then from 15 to 30, they would work back kind of that support by being a slave to their family. At the age of 30, then they would be released. In fact, in many ways, what we see in, in the first century world is that these slaves came in, they were actually well-educated. Their owners would, would educate them so they would have opportunities. Many slaves in the ancient world became doctors, became lawyers, became secretaries, actually began to, to rule kind of, or, or uh, kind of lead the banks that, the, that, that their owner had. In one case, they would actually sell themselves into slavery for an opportunity to kind of lift themselves in society. You understand Felix, as we see in, the, in, in Acts, uh, in which Felix is the one who sent Paul into prison. We understand that he was a slave and then later became the governor of Judea. So we see it, it's completely different than American slavery. There's this kind of a, a way up in the first century world. In fact, as the age of 30, many of them were set free. They would gain their Roman citizenship and then they would actually became kind of have this relationship with their owners as they became the client or, or their, their owner became the client, and then they became uh, the ones who were gaining the money from them. In fact, one, there is a story of one person who actually became a millionaire because his, his slave owner uh, actually began to uh, write in his will that he would inherit all his millions. So we see that it was completely different in first century times than what we see in America. 
America was d- disgusting and, and gross. But also what we need to see is that the Bible never, never supports slavery. In fact, many times we see the exact opposite. We see God beginning to punish the slaveholders and setting the slaves free. We see that with the story of Israel. As they were enslaved by Egypt, God punishes Egypt and yet sets Israel free. We see it in the story of Daniel and and Babylon. And God uses Babylon, but he punishes Babylon and sets Israel free. We see it uh, in in the story uh, of Joseph. Joseph being sold in slavery, and yet we're told it's evil, but yet God uses it for good. We also need to understand that the gospel is, is the exact opposite of what slavery is about. The gospel tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It tells us to consider others more important. Even in Ephesians chapter 5, what does Paul tell us? He says, for us to imitate our God. And who is our God but a God? He is the father of the fatherless, a champion of the widow, one who, who stands against the oppressor and, and gives a voice to the oppressed. He says, imitate this be about this, and yet Paul, even in his own words, comes harshly against slavery in 1 Timothy. He calls those who enslaves people to be sinful, to be against God. We see it in our own passage, as he says it very clearly in our own passage, in Ephesians 6, uh, at, at verse 9, when he says this, and yours in, uh, that there is no partiality between the slaveholder and the slave. So time and time again, what we see the Bible do is says that slavery and, and, and the one who has a slave was sinful. But notice what Paul is going to say to, to the slave. He's going to turn to the slave and it's, it's going to be monumental. He says, slave, you don't need to change your vocation or your job to find your satisfaction. But what you need to do is simply shift and realize who you're serving. And the same thing applies to our own jobs, that we don't have to change our vocation to find our satisfaction or happiness. All we have to do is realize who we're actually serving. Because when we go back to work this next week, we're going to beg the question, what, what is going to bring us satisfaction in our vocation? What is going to bring our joy? And Paul's answer is very simple. Remind yourself of who you work for. Notice what it says in verse 5. It says, obey your master with respect and trembling with a sincere heart. Catch it. As you would Christ. Next he says, he says, next he, he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good, uh, good will as to the Lord and not to, to man. And notice what's taking place that there is a noticeable transfer of masters taking place. And Paul says when we get our eyes on who actually we're serving, that that, that we're serving our great master, he says that, that the space between the sacred and the secular disappears. That, that, that oftentimes that we begin to separate our church life from our work life, but, but that's not the case of what Paul is trying to get us to see. He's trying to get us to see that when we go to our work, it's it's just as as much as an opportunity to worship God as we sit in this room and read our Bibles. Why? Because we do so unto the Lord. We don't raise our kids. We're not just raising our kids, but we're raising our kids as to the Lord. We we just don't go to serve our country, but we serve our country as to the Lord. We, We just don't go to the marketplace. 
But we go to the marketplace as to the Lord. We're, we're serving. Every work opportunity is an opportunity to serve our great Lord. Paul says our boss is ultimately Jesus and we serve and we work and we tire and we sweat for the glory of God as bondservants of our master Jesus. But as another Gallup poll suggests that many of us are not getting that idea of, of, of the theology of our own vocations. 75% of us says we see no direct correlation between our faith and our jobs. And what your essence in saying is this is why we don't find satisfaction in our jobs is because we separate it from the eternal. And what Paul is trying to get us to see is he's tying everything back to the gospel. That it's not just my work life and I put Jesus on a shelf from, from Monday to Friday and I pick him back up on a Sunday. But the gospel has an impact on every aspect of my life. It's not just my church life or my work life, but it's only one life. And the gospel calls me to give it all to Jesus. So therefore, whether I eat or whether I drink or whether I go and, and, and take some notes down on a, on a Monday morning at work or whatever I'm doing on a Monday, I do so for the glory of God. Paul says, keep your eyes on your master. That in this Christian life, that we are serving the king of kings. That's why Jared Hopkins would say this. He says, to lift up our hands in prayer gives God glory. But a man with a dung fork in his hand or a woman with a slop pail gives God glory too. And no matter what we do in our vocations, it's a worship opportunity to do so unto the King of Kings. And this idea radically transforms the way we think about work. It's going to transform the way we think about our bosses, as it says in this passage, verse 5. I, I must obey my earthly master with fear and trembling, with sincere heart, as I would Christ. Notice Paul doesn't address whether you have a good boss or a bad boss. He simply says, obey them as you would to Christ. And sometimes we need to honor the position. So as we honor the position who's above us, we begin to honor the person who's above us. Then he turns and he says, not only will it impact the way you think about your boss, but it's going to impact the way you go about your work. You're going to have a different work ethic as you realize who you're serving. In fact, if you look at this passage, what we, we often think of is, is the menial, the common work becomes so boring, it becomes so routine that we lose track that, that each boring and routine thing we do is actually a holy task now. As John Cotton would say this, there is no work too hard nor too homely for the follower of Christ. For what drudgery can be too homely for me to do for my God? In essence, all the menial tasks become holy tasks now because I'm doing it to the king of kings. My king is watching over me, as suggests in verse 6, that we should serve as sincere hearts, not by the way of the eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And you've got to love Paul's honesty there. He understands mankind's kind of disposition. We work hard when our boss watches us. Our boss goes out the door and we slack and slack off a little bit. The old adage that says that when the boss is away, the mice shall play should not be true of a Christ follower. Because our earthly supervisor might not be watching us, but what Paul is saying is our heavenly supervisor is always watching us. So therefore, we should go about our work on a Monday through a Friday with great diligence, with great, with, with great uh, service, because we're serving our King of kings 
company who understood this well was Shaker Furniture Company. They understood their supervisor was Christ and it affected everything they did. Listen to their motto. Shaker Furniture Company says this, we make every product better than it has ever been done before. It says, make the parts you cannot see as well as the parts you can see. Use only the best of material, even for the most everyday items. Give the same attention to the smallest details as you would to the largest. Design every item that you would make so it lasts forever. It was said that a shaker chair was made fit for an angel. And imagine if we took that same motto. Imagine if we had this work ethic of saying, yes, our heavenly uh, supervisor is watching over us, so therefore we, we put our best effort to those products we, we can't see to the things we can see. So that therefore we're making our product or whatever we're doing, not just fit for an angel, but fit for a king. See, this is a monumental kind of shift in the way we think about our vocation. We go to work for the glory of God, which then affects where we're actually working for and what reward we're searching for, as it says in verse 8. Verse 8, it says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. In essence, what Paul is asking the question, he says, have you ever felt under, or, 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 uh, have you ever felt underappreciated or undervalued in your work? Have you ever felt like nobody is actually watching you or paying you for what, what you actually deserve? And there's that temptation again that, that when you're underappreciated or you're not getting paid as well for the work you're doing, then there's this idea that we just slack off. After all, why should I put my best effort forth if I'm not getting paid for it? But what Paul is saying in this passage, he's saying, no, no, no. He's saying if somebody does see you, somebody does appreciate you, and somebody will reward you for all the work you put in. Might not be in this life but it will definitely be in the next. So Paul says, worker, whether you're at home or in, 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 in the marketplace or whether you're on base, he says, give your best effort. Do so unto the glory of God. And yet, after he deals with the slaves, he turns his attention now to the slave owner and he says, do the same. In other words, have humility of heart. Be kind. Be one who, as he says in the passage, does not threaten, does not intimidate those who are under you, but you lift them up, that you love them well, that you treat them kindly. He's saying to me, why? Why, why should we do this? Because there's no partiality between who, who, who we're serving. We're, we're just as equal at the cross as them. And yet what gets me so often is I see people who get the title or who get into a new position and all of a sudden their chest gets bigger. They begin to look down on those who are under them. And I ask the question, what has changed? Has your DNA changed somehow with this new title or this new position? God's saying, no, you're the same person, therefore you should be, have the same character. You should have the same humility. There should be nothing that changes about you other than your title. That's what Paul is trying to get across. That when we get our eyes off of ourselves and get it back on our master, that we serve the same master in heaven, it impacts the way we go about our jobs, whether we're the boss or the supervisor or whether we're the ones under them. 
He says, do so unto the glory of God. A man who did this well was a man by the name of Clyde Cook. Dr. Clyde Cook served Biola University for 25 years. 25 years, he had 5,000 students under his care, 350 teachers, and a, a load of other kind of custodians and other workers under his uh, supervision. On the day that he retired, Dr. Clyde Cook was walking the campus. He found one of his student, one of a, a students that was kind of looking to, to, to partake it and be a, a part of Biola University, a student that was kind of looking to enroll there. He struck up conversation with his student and his family, talked about all sorts of things, talked about what it looks like to surf on the California coast, talked about the math program at Biola University. And these parents of this student, what they notice is that, that everybody knew Clyde's name. Dr. Cook, it's so good to see you. Dr. Cook, it's so good to see you. And he's walking this campus. Everybody is saying hi to him. And, and, and they begin to realize this man must be important here. So they turned to Dr. Clyde Cook, president of Biola University, and asked him, are you a professor here? Dr. Clyde Cook, his only response was, nope, I'm retired. A man who served that campus for 25 years. So humble in heart that all he replied was, I'm retired. Because he served the master of one, it impacted how he was a supervisor to his campus. He knew there was nothing different about him other than the people that he served. He was simply serving them as to the Lord. Friends, when we get our eyes on to our real master, it impacts how we go to our vocations this next week. Whether we're raising our children, whether we're on base, or whether we go in the marketplace, we do so unto the glory of God. We're serving our king of kings, so therefore we put our best effort in, in place. We, we treat others around us with kindness, and we do so unto the glory of the Lord because we understand that it's a worship opportunity. No work for the Christian is too low. No work is too great. We give our best effort because we're serving our King of Kings. God, I'm thankful for your word. God, I'm thankful for the opportunity that we get to see in your word that we are serving you and you alone. So God, would you, would you be with your people this morning that you would empower us to leave this place with a different theology of our vocation or our work. Let us understand that vocation, what it really speaks to is calling. That you have called us to be in our position no matter what it might be. That you are the sovereign one. And you have placed us there for a reason and for a purpose. So we serve unto you looking for that purpose, seeking that purpose. Let us be a blessing in our workplace. Let, let us be a light. Let us point others to the glory of who you are. Let us raise our kids seeing that we are passionate about your namesake. That everything we do, whether we eat or whether we drink or whether we go to work, is for your glory and your glory alone. Be with your church. We pray these things in your name. Amen.